What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. After more than 47 years with the company, Bob Iger is leaving Disney. He sat down for an exclusive interview with CNBC to talk about his extraordinary tenure and what the future holds for him and for Disney. I'm David Faber, and this is the Bob Iger Exit Interview, December 2021. You know, I want to talk a lot about, obviously, the last 47 years, but I'd love to also just start off on the future. It's hard not to when we're looking at the... Yeah. Millennium yeah, of Falcon. Of course. Um, so let's do that. You know, as you leave Disney and you think about how it's positioned, what are your thoughts about the challenges and what it is uh, ready for and what perhaps, you know, still will represent significant challenges for this company with you no longer, obviously, as its executive chairman, let alone its CEO? I fundamentally believe Disney is extremely well positioned uh, in that it uh, has become such a successful, effective storytelling engine. And I think in today's world, given what technology enables in terms of telling stories, basically using technology to make them even more compelling, more interesting, but also telling them to more people, I think being uh, more capable of telling more stories at a high level of quality is a great way to position the company. That said, I've never seen a world that has changed or is changing as rapidly as the one that we live in today. And I think as I learned over the time that I was CEO and chairman, and as Bob Chapik I think is already learning, is that marketplace is so dynamic and changing so much that there's no such thing as being completely well positioned because conditions are changing regularly, right before our eyes and profoundly. So I think it's important to, in terms of well positioning, to not only have a great asset base and great people to manage that asset base, but to be uh, flexible and have the ability to both look around corners and see where the world might be going, but also have the ability to adapt to the changes that the marketplace is throwing our way or well, your way. Right, well you talk about flexibility, you obviously showed a lot of it. You also had, when you took over in 2005, a definite idea of what you needed to do to a certain extent scale being a key part of that. You do feel like, though, the company has the flexibility now? I mean, you're, you're on a path here with certain decisions that you made and that now Mr. Sure. Pick is obviously executing on as well. Well, look, in 2005, what I saw was a world that was going to change dramatically because of technology. And when I uh, thought about how that could impact our company, what was very, very clear to me is that technology would provide us the opportunity tell more stories to more people. We had to then develop the capability to do so and also own the IP to tell stories from or of. So that begat the purchases of Pixar, Marvel, and Lucas, and ultimately 20th Century Fox. Not just the assets, but the people that came with them. In reality, that scenario of a world in which technology is enabling more storytelling exists today probably even more so. And with that comes even more competition I think the company's well positioned, and I think the fact that we transformed the company by creating digital direct-to-consumer platforms, which we did not have before, also provides a great opportunity. But I think as Bob knows, and he's already, I think, demonstrated this, is that he's got to uh, move with the times, so to speak, and not be complacent, not rest on laurels, or maintain a pat hand. I think the one thing that is very, very clear is that it, anyone that stands in the way of innovation or adapting to change is gonna create problems. Any company, any, any person, um, it's just really that important. Yeah, well, when I think back though, obviously having covered all of this for so many years as well, Disney is one of the few companies left that actually is not subscale, it would seem. I mean, back in 05, the company you described that you'd taken over from Eisner, um, it's very different now. And you seem to have that first mover advantage and gulped up a lot of assets that I'm sure many of the competitors now wish they had actually moved on. 
doesn't mean that there weren't plenty of opportunities that perhaps you, you passed on, but is everybody else sort of subscale when you look at the world as it was uh, 16, 17 years ago? You know, I've never really spent much time thinking about how our competitors are positioned in that regard. I've spent most of the time thinking about how we're positioned. So I don't know that others are scaled right or subscaled necessarily. I just think we're well scaled. Look, we're sitting here in Galaxy's Edge based on obviously Star Wars mythology. That's a great example, by the way, of, of leveraging IP and scaling up yep. uh, on the back of great IP, touching more people. We're also better positioned globally than we were back then. Technology has enabled that. The Disney Plus platform, a great example of that is just enabling us to reach more people in more markets around the world than ever before with more IP. Right. It's funny though, when you talked about direct to consumer and I followed you on this journey, I can remember the August, 15, August of 2015, the big ESPN conference call where for the first time you sort of said, hey, things are changing. We're doing it. Mm -hmm. And we're doing it. And then in 17, when you started to roll out the idea of Disney Plus, and I think it was an ESPN Plus, and then obviously the Fox deal and when you actually um, introduced the service and the great success that it's had. But there's always those who say, ah, they don't know. You know, is it, is it too deep but not broad enough? Have you hit all of these people who you know, love Disney right here, but you're not gonna get to that 200 million, 230 million sub number because there's not enough there for the broader population outside of the people who love Disney products? Well, there's guidance out there that the company has provided that I'm neither gonna update or, or comment uh, too much on, but obviously the company has um, expressed confidence in its ability to achieve the guidance that it has out there. Um, and so, and I, 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 and, I, and I obviously supported that. So that yeah. guidance was put out there uh, by Bob um, when he was CEO and I, I was chairman. Um, I, again, I, I think look, we, can't, we can't just maintain a pat hand. This, the, the world isn't staying basically the same. Uh, we have to continue to evolve. And all that, that means not just changing, but taking advantage of opportunities aggressively. For instance, the investment that we're making in international television production, local international television production, which is substantially greater than anything we've ever done before, is an example of what is necessary to achieve not only the guidance, but to reach more people in, in the world that is evolving right before our eyes. Um, I, don't know, I don't know whether I'm, I'm answering your question or yeah, not, except well, that I think the time will tell um, I mean, the point what is, it will take to get to the kind of scale that maybe certain people expect of and that, Well, that are out there, that, that, that the company has put out there. I mean, listen, you've always been able to do it. There were doubters initially, certainly, and then it had an incredible uh, year, two years of, of sub-growth direct-to-consumer. But there's this continued question, as strong as Pixar is with its audience, strong as Star Wars is, and Marvel, and the incredibly deep loyalty it has, do you need to be broader in order to actually reach those kinds of numbers? I think there probably needs to be more dimensionality, meaning more um, programming or more content for more people, different demographics. But Bob's aware of that and is addressing those issues. When you think back, you'd had this history of getting these founders to sell you their companies. And it struck me as interesting. Obviously, Steve Jobs, Ike Perlmutter, and George Lucas, and then Rupert. Rupert Murdoch, yeah. Do you think it was something unique about you that allowed you to convince all of these founders to part with their babies? Uh, in all cases, I developed a trust with them uh, and convinced them would serve them well if they sold to us. In Steve's case, he owned half of uh, Pixar, publicly traded company, and converted his ownership of Pixar into all Disney. That, by the way, wasn't the motivation behind him doing it. It wasn't about growing his personal wealth at all. Um, but more importantly, with Steve, I created a trust in him that the assets of Pixar and his people would be in the right hands. And so I think in terms of your question, what, what was it about me that convinced him? Uh, first of all, it was me, meaning singular in terms of the pursuit, one-on-one uh, -on -one in some cases, um, being as candid as I possibly could be, and I think as authentic as I could be in developing a relationship, and not disappointing him either. Yeah, what does never, that mean? He was never disappointed once we did the deal. In fact, in the months before he died, he came to, uh, he and his wife, Lorraine, came to our house. He toasted to the deal we had done 
some years earlier, uh, convinced that it was the right thing to do for Disney and for Pixar. And I remember it was, it was very heartfelt and tears came to our eyes, in part dreading what was potentially in store for him, uh, which is the end of his life, um, but in part reflecting on what we had done together and truly appreciating it. So I think, again, it's development of a relationship. In Ike Perlmutter's case, different in some ways, but similar in others. It was me going to New York, spending months trying to figure out getting a meeting with him, sitting with him one-on-one, -on -one, once and then twice a couple of days later, and um, convincing him that it was the right thing to do for the Marvel shareholders, which is a publicly traded company, and the people at Marvel. And I think he was intrigued with the notion of... Um, of investing in Disney plus Marvel, and it worked out extremely well. And became a large shareholder. I assume you heard from him frequently as well uh, after he became a Disney shareholder. I heard from he? Ike, yeah, I heard from Ike a lot over the years. Yeah, that's what I'd heard. We weren't, we weren't always in, in, um, in sync? complete agreement on things, um, but that's neither here nor there. I think it's turned out extremely well for him, and certainly for the shareholders of Marvel, it's turned out I think they got Disney shares yeah. somewhere in the neighborhood of $28 a share. Uh, I know we were up around 200 Even if you look at it today in the 150 range, that's a pretty good return on investment. And George's case was also singular in many ways. I had breakfast with him at Disney World, talked to him about the future of Lucasfilm. He was close with Steve Jobs. And don't forget, Pixar was owned at one point by George. Steve bought it from George. And George was impressed with how we had... Um, managed Pixar and assimilated Pixar into the company. He was very, very concerned about Lucasfilm, many respects his baby, his legacy. Uh, and there was a trust there too that I think we demonstrated uh, that we could be trusting in terms of how we had already managed the Marvel assets and the Pixar assets. Um, and I think he was looking to some extent for either long-term wealth preservation or long-term wealth creation. And so he took half stock, half and half And also cash. the tax, potential tax changes may have motivated him a little bit. That was I a think, timing time. issue. That yeah. was a timing issue. And he did extremely well as well, getting Disney stock, I think, in the high 50s, 56, yeah. 58. And Rupert, you know, I think it was barely a little bit more complex. Was it more about money with Rupert and less about legacy of the acquired properties? I... I, I don't know. I don't know if you say money per se, but Economics. Rupert was intrigued. Rupert was very focused on the scale that was necessary to be successful in, as a media company in a new world, particularly with the um, incursion, or uh, if you want to call it that, of the tech companies getting into the media space. And he had genuine concerns about how his company was positioned in that marketplace, and thought that his shareholders, and he, including his family, would be better off and, and combined than, um, than going it alone. He was looking for top dollar. Uh, in many respects, he got it. But again, I think he had concerns about how his company was positioned. I know that he did because he expressed them to me when we first sat down. Yeah, and we've talked a bit about that. We certainly did on the day you guys announced the deal, I recall. But, you know, it's funny because even only a handful of years ago when you did that deal, the scale of these platforms has only grown enormously. Yeah. And I'm curious as to when you look out at the world. I mean, obviously in 2005, you could not have even known, but of Alphabet, of Facebook, of Amazon, of Apple, which you knew well sitting on the board for many years. These companies, Bob, are bigger than I think those of us who've been in this business for so long, or at least covering it, you doing, could ever have imagined in their power. How do you think about them, broadly speaking, at this point? Well, I think what those companies have achieved in terms of scale, size, I think says a lot about the world. I mean, we used to talk about Moore's Law and you know, how <clears throat> basically quickly things were growing. Computational power is one thing. But I think when you look at uh, all of the factors that have enabled technological growth, uh, we probably should have been able to predict back then just how big these companies could become. Um, although I think even if we had made predictions, we probably wouldn't have been as accurate. I mean, <laughs> Apple's going to be a three trillion dollar market yes. cap company. Yes, but that speaks volumes about the world today. It's just the power of technology to essentially be applied in every single aspect of our lives, and every business 
to almost every person on this planet. Like, of course. And I think what, what we're seeing today in terms of the scale of those companies in the media space, which probably shouldn't surprise us, um, but the enormity of it all is still just mind-boggling. And look, I, I wouldn't have predicted that, except I will say that when we did the Fox deal, uh, it was all through the lens of needing scale to achieve success on, in the direct-to-consumer digital platform space. None of it was viewed as a, basically a traditional media play. Uh, we knew that we'd be running the businesses we were buying uh, on traditional um, platforms with traditional business models. But in terms of the value creation, it was all tied to the growth of digital platforms, direct-to-consumer, yeah. globally. I mean, I, I want to talk more, obviously, about the FANG, but back to Fox for a minute. You mentioned you got a pretty high price, or as high a price as you could have. Do you feel like that's been a successful deal? Um, you did pay a high price. It was a high multiple for those assets. Obviously, then we ran into COVID and so many different issues. But sitting back now, are you happy that you paid that price? Yes. First of all, um, we divested certain assets, including the 39% stake in Sky, which went for a very high price. Thanks to my parent company. And so we reduced. In fact, you were the one who told me at some point. Well, that was, you, you made the call and told me they had pulled out of that you'd their won, pursuit of Fox. Right, yes. that you'd won Fox. Yes, which yeah. only signaled to me that they, it would be even more aggressive about buying the controlling stake in Sky. Um, so we reduced the size of the acquisition by a significant amount, more than we ever expected. And we also sold off the, the RSNs or the, the regional sports It was a network. good sale, by the way. Well, it was a good sale. We, at the time, we were a little bit disappointed in the price because it was a little bit lower than we had hoped. But then you look at the assets that we got, and to go back to the question you, almost, you asked me almost at the beginning, do we have the scale and the diversity of content right. to uh, attract a diverse subscription base or audience? Without the Fox assets, we wouldn't have that. Even if you look at just Disney Plus, and you look at the 30-plus years of Simpsons and Avatar, and all of the animation that they created, and National Geographic, I mean, I could go on and on, and the talent that came with it, not just the creative talent, but the creative management talent that came with it, essential, and the global scale as well. We're launching Disney Plus in more markets, and they had planted more flags from a media perspective in more markets than we had, and, and more successfully. And then you look at Star, which is the brand that we're launching outside the United States in most markets, that couldn't have happened without the uh, 20th Century Fox assets. So. Right. So you're, you're obviously happy you did the deal, and that was the price you had to pay. Yes, and I think you also have to add the controlling stake in Hulu, because in buying that, we ended up with over, I think, about two-thirds of Hulu. We subsequently bought out the Time Warner or AT&T Time Warner uh, assets and, and Comcast uh, remains an owner, but yeah. we have um, you know, real optimism about the future of that platform. Why? Well, again, I think you're seeing a migration to more digital, um, direct-to-consumer uh, forms of entertainment distribution. And um, being in that business at a larger scale, because I think that will pr provide more growth for the company than the traditional media platforms would have, and just the migration, the erosion of the traditional media platforms, and the growth of the new ones, we're playing in that new space much more aggressively than we would have, obviously without Disney Plus, without Hulu as well. Right. Um, speaking of the traditional platforms, uh, and, and we mentioned it briefly here when you talked about the RSNs, sports rights, ESPN. Um, how do you view that business now and, and its future, uh, given the continued expansion somehow of the price of sports rights, at least for a handful of sports, uh, and the continued erosion of that linear audience that's willing to pay. I mean, as is the case in many respects with what we did with Disney Plus, you have to follow the technology and the audience that is using that technology. Sports is not going away. Uh, live sports consumption on what I'll call a television experience, even if the television is you know, connected very differently uh, than the traditional television was, in my opinion, is a growth business interest in live sports yeah. um, because of how exciting it is and how unpredictable it is. So I think being in that space is still very valuable. 
but you've got to go where the consumer is going. I think the consumer basically wants much more flexibility in terms of how they're accessing those sports, whether it's the kind of device they're accessing on or their location, uh, or just the whole user interface. We're raising a generation of people, you, my sons, you know, your kids, who are much more used to the user interface and the navigation and the choice. And the, you know, I said this a long time ago. If, among the things that I've seen in terms of change in the industry over my tenure in the business is a huge shift of authority from the distributor and the creator to the consumer. At first I saw it with the power of the remote control device instead of having to get up and change a channel. Sounds like we're about to talk about it's Back ancient. to your worldwide sports days, yeah. yeah. Well, but we're seeing that today. It's no longer a remote control device. It's the you know, use of a click of a button or the use of a mouse or you know, or a voice command, right. and suddenly that gives you access. Um, and that's so dramatic, and I think people are consuming things in much more different ways. App-based entertainment in the home has, is replacing the linear channel consumption in the home. So when you go back to the question you asked about the future of that business, it's not bright at all. It's it's actually eroding right before our eyes. And has been for years. It has been, and I think that's going to continue. And you and I have had this conversation for years. Yes, and I think that's why it was important for us to position ourselves in the new space, to be much more modern media company. And what we saw at the same time is the, and we've used the word incursion before, but you know the massive growth of new platforms that were coming in completely untethered to any old business model. Right. Completely, I mean, think about that. I mean, I used to talk about incumbents and insurgents. We were incumbents, they were insurgents. And someone advised me when I became CEO of the company, act like an insurgent, not an incumbent. Because incumbency is not something in a world that is changing so much that it's not a winning strategy. You acted much more like an insurgent, and obviously were very aggressive throughout your, your tenure of running the company. Um, and by the way, in buying all that content yeah. enabled us to be insurgents. The right. question then was, what do we do with that content? It wasn't just buying it, it's what do you do with it? But when you think about ESPN, which obviously, again, during your tenure, contributed enormous amounts of cash flow to this company. It came from your beloved Cap Cities ABC, where you yes. were as well. It had an incredible run, but you know, I've asked you this so many times, we've talked about this, does the move to direct-to-consumer on ESPN ultimately balance out the loss of that well, I think ultimately what you're seeing now is, you know, the tide is changing dramatically. The new tide is coming in, the old tide is going out, and we're in that transition. Um, I happen to believe that the future of ESPN is very bright as long as it continues to hold on to sports rights and it continues to migrate in terms of how those rights are both distributed or sold to consumers. And the question, I guess, that really Bob will deal with and is dealing with is, do you accelerate that, or do you try to accelerate it, um, or do you hold back as long as you possibly can? It's not a decision I'll make, but I happen to believe that the future of ESPN is bright if it can make that successful migration to the new platform. Although these days you're competing against those, those insurgents, so to speak. I mean, who knows what Amazon or Apple might be willing to pay for some of those sports rights? it could be unlimited given their ability to actually not care about the return. Well, it is hard to compete with uh, companies that, that, that um, are approaching things like that, either because of their size or just because of just their ability to take on bigger risks. Um, I think we're well positioned though. ESPN is quite a good brand. Um, it has amassed just a phenomenal, phenomenal collection of sports rights um, that I think it is using well to continue to be popular and attract consumers. And I, think it's, I think it has to migrate. Yeah, to well new it is platforms. migrating. But it's got, the question is at what pace? And that's not something for me to determine. It's the question for all of us. I think if I, had, if I had remained, I probably would have pushed it pretty hard. Yeah. What does that and mean, fast. harder than it is right now? How do you even do that? Well, you have to do a few things. One, you've got to make sure that the rights that you're buying give you that flexibility. And secondly, you have to make sure that your relationships with all the incumbent distributors give you that flexibility as well. Right. Did I'm not suggesting I would have pushed it harder than is, but Bob will push it. I'm just suggesting I would have pushed it hard, harder than I, ha than I had. Been. Than you did. Yeah. Did you ever think about selling it? We talked about it often. We always, 
we, we always reevaluated our asset base with an eye toward what was going to create the best growth for us, what was best for the shareholders of the company long term. It came up from time to time. The RSNs, that's not a great business at all. You mentioned you didn't think you got as high a price. You're lucky you got out when you did. That's ended up for Sinclair being a terrible purchase. Um, I just do wonder if, you know, some of these sports, it's not clear to me the rights will continue to go up. It almost seems unsustainable in some way. Well, pricing is obviously an issue in terms of how the cost of either um, staging sporting events or selling the rights to them arises and to what extent that cost can be passed on to consumers. Whether they're buying tickets, by the way, at events or whether they're subscribing to a service. Um, I don't know that we know yet. One thing I do know is that live sports are very, very attractive in today's world as an entertainment form, as a form of entertainment. Some more than others. There are some sports that are truly uh, ascendant sports still. The NBA would be one example of that. I think the NFL has proven to be not only unbelievably resilient to all the changes that have occurred, but they've continued to be ascendant, which for an entity that large, that successful, is quite impressive. It says something about the quality of what happens on the field and the, and the vision of the, of the league. Can we talk about movies a little bit? I love movies. I know you love movies. We all love movies, but a lot of people don't seem to be going to the movies anymore. Um, how do you think about that? Well, I, I have very, very firm uh, or beliefs about all of this. People want, love going out. They love experiencing things in physical form. We talked about sports. They love going to sporting events. I went in the middle of the pandemic to a game at the new stadium in L.A., SoFi Stadium. Last week, there were 70,000 people there in a game that was a relatively meaningless game from a competitive perspective. People like to go out. That's not going away. I happen to believe that people will continue to want to go to movie theaters to watch movies. Now, the question is, how many? And I think what we're seeing today is a result of a few things. One, more competition for entertainment in the home. Uh, and more volume, meaning there's just more to watch at home. And uh, the pricing is really good. Whether you're subscribing to Netflix or Disney Plus or Hulu or some of the competitors, those are good deals. You're getting a lot of quality, a lot of volume for a relatively inexpensive price. I worry that the cost of a movie ticket is becoming more of a problem for people, particularly in inflationary times, which we've been experiencing. But when you compare that cost of going to a movie with the cost of staying home and watching a subscription service, I think it's starting to get too high. So what's going to happen? So I think that is a contributing factor. So you have competition in the home, you have pricing, and then, of course, you have the pandemic. I used to talk about the friction of driving to a theater, parking, getting a babysitter if you've got kids, all of those things. And I think maybe those were factors, but I don't think those factors are the factors that are really causing a decrease in movie going. I think it's the other factors uh, that are causing it. So I think you're still going to have uh, big screen uh, experiences available. I think there will be fewer of them, though. But what does it mean for a company like this one that was built on the power of movies, whether they be animated or otherwise? I mean, I look at this. This incredible franchise started with a movie in 1977. Yeah, it did. First of all, thanks to technology, we can make movie-quality television today, and we are. If you think about what George did with New Hope, or which wasn't called New Hope in 1977, versus The Mandalorian. Right. Look at the quality that's on screen, special effects, you name it. Does it have the same cultural impact, though? You've written in your book about Black Panther, which was a very important moment, you said, in sort of your tenure. Yes, one of, my, one of my most memorable moments, actually. That doesn't open in movie theaters. Does it have the same impact? I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think that the impact of a large screen experience, global sometimes, the same release date around the world, the world going out to a movie, experiencing larger-than-life characters on that big screen with other people. I think there's something very, very powerful about that that does have an impact on how that resonates. And I think that migrating completely away from the big screen experience would not be something I would necessarily 
uh, advised, but that you know that won't that won't be my decision. I would I you would seem maintain. like you're glad you don't have to make that no, decision. No, I'm, well, no, I'm, I'm not glad. <laughs> I'm look, I'm 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 perfectly comfortable with my decision to step down. Um, to suggest I'd be relieved <laughs> because I don't have to make tough calls anymore. I've been making tough calls for so long. I never got tired of that. It became sort of the way of the world. Right. Um, but I would. I would probably have stuck with some large screen global release um, uh, strategy. I would not necessarily, uh, the window would be different, it would be short, but uh, I think there's some value to it. I mean, West Side Story, it's a Spielberg movie, incredible reviews, and it, it didn't do much of its opening box office. I don't. Well, I can't, uh, yes, I, 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 first of all, it's still early. We'll see what kind of legs the film has. Um, it's a phenomenal film. Steven did a brilliant job. Uh, obviously, we're being hit by another wave, we another are. variant, Omicron. That has had an impact. I haven't really studied demographics, and we did a brilliant job marketing it. Um, cost might be an issue, by the way. Maybe what we're seeing in West Side Story is exactly what I talked about which is you've got more competition in the home, you've got a cost factor, and you've got COVID. Right. We'll see. But there does seem to be a question, at least, in terms of the importance of the impact of these movies and your ability to build a franchise at Disney, which you've done so successfully. And I just wonder, if it yeah. doesn't have that initial impact, can you build as strong from it? Look, I think it's a little too early. Um, you just look at some of the most powerful shows that have been on Netflix. The most recent one would be Squid Game, for instance, that's really resonating globally. Look, there's also something to be said for a, a series that runs multiple times in a given year over multiple years. You know, people, The Sopranos on HBO no is doubt. A, a great example no of doubt. that. And or even Succession right I now could, on HBO. I, you could go on and on. You could name Which a recently kind of did your selling to, you know, your buying from Rupert was the last, was the, spoiler alert. The last part yeah. of that. I don't know if you've been well, watching. But. Uh, no, I haven't been watching this season no, you because I haven't watch had time. It. But you know, go back to just what we did with Mandalorian and then with Baby Yoda. I was just looking yesterday at some of the press that we got, you know, the cover of every magazine, CNBC, I'm sure, covering the emergence of Baby Yoda. Now, Baby Yoda, Yoda was born in a, in a movie, uh, but there was the Mandalorian barely existed, at least in the movie uh, storytelling. That was pretty telling for us in terms of what that, and that platform was still nascent. You know, there weren't many subscribers at the time and it exploded. You just mentioned sort of having to make tough decisions and that's part of the job. I'm curious if, if you have, when you go back and think about what might have been your best decision. I'm proud of a lot of the decisions that were made, uh, certainly the acquisitions. Um, I'd say of all of them, probably Pixar because it was the first um, and it put us on a path to achieving what I wanted to achieve which is scale when it came to storytelling uh, that was probably the best you faced I mean your own board you were uncertain whether you were going to get it passed Eisner came back to to say don't do it we had a long conversation about that years later and he admitted that he was wrong about that I think there was a lot of emotion at that point for him having left Disney and under such strange circumstances with Steve. But looking back, when he reflected on it with me, he admitted that I did the right thing. Well, you know, it's funny, because I remember interviewing you and Jobs that afternoon after you announced it, and I was, you know, basically focused on the price. And I think, I, was, man, you're paying an awfully high multiple. Many people may not have understood how incredibly important it was to sort of set a new direction for the company. Yes, I wanted to send a signal to everybody at Disney that um, it was an, a new day, that we were uh, more open-minded about expansion, in particular about partnerships, that creativity was the most important um, strategy for the company, and Pixar at that point exemplified original storytelling and quality and creativity in, in its highest form. And then there was the Steve factor, something called the cool factor, which is what Apple was, what Steve represented, the fact that Steve would embrace um, not just Disney, but me and the vote of confidence that Steve gave in me, and Steve becoming a member of the board and our largest shareholder. It's all tied up in my desire to not only grow content, but to reposition Disney to our employees, to our shareholders, and to our customers. And the price, you mentioned it, also, 
factored in my desire to revitalize Disney animation, which we did. And you look at Frozen, and you look at Moana, and you look at Zootopia, and you look at Wreck-It Ralph, and you look at Tangled, and the number of Academy Awards and the box office success, and all of the IP that that created, generated, um, and how we're basically we're going to mine that IP for Disney Plus. Everything that we've done at Disney Animation since then was tied to the Pixar acquisition. Then it developed a, what became a very important friendship for you with Steve Jobs. Yeah, and it's interesting. I'm now I'm reflecting back on all these years, and I think about all the things that um, would be in my highlight reel, so to speak. Um, creating that relationship with Steve, which went way beyond just a business relationship, was life-changing for me. And he became a close friend, a confidant, an advisor. Uh, in some ways, I was to him as well. Uh, his desire for me to join the Apple board after he died, um, which I did, and loved that experience. The lessons he taught me, the role model that he became, um, his passion for Disney, and Steve Jobs' endorsement of Disney and what that meant. Yeah. That was a big deal. Yeah. yeah, I miss him a lot. He's dead. He's dead. He's gone 10 years. This past October. Do you still think about him a lot? I think about him all the time. Do you? Yeah. In any particular context or just? Well, lessons learned, you know, the attention to detail, that details matter, working really hard at eliminating imperfections, the relentless pursuit of perfection, the, the value of design, respect for the customer, taking risks, being innovative, uh, knowing how dynamic the marketplace was and how fast things were moving, and not only keeping pace, but actually looking around corners and trying to move the market too, all of those things. Now you mentioned in the book the idea that if Steve had lived, Disney and Apple might have become one. Did you guys ever really talk about Apple buying Disney? No, uh, Steve and I never did. Um, what we did talk about, and he was public about this, I think at one point, one of his late Apple product presentations, he stood in front of a street sign with an intersection. I think one said liberal arts and one said technology. That's what made his heart sing. I think that's how we put it, that intersection. And so what we talked about a lot was what happens when great technology meets great creativity. I mean, that to him was the secret sauce for almost everything. If you um, project that into how the world was changing and you think of a world where suddenly the opportunity to use that technology to create new experiences for people in terms of how they access content, the natural thing would have been for Apple to have the great content that Disney creates uh, applied or used on their platform. And I know, I'm, I'm pretty convinced we would have had that discussion. And, you know, that was maybe somewhat wistful of me uh, when I wrote that. But I just knew of his passion for everything we did and everything Apple did and his deep, deep belief that nothing would be more powerful than that combination. I think we would have gotten there. When I asked you what your best decision was, you went back to Pixar. You know, it's funny because the culture of Disney at that point may be hard to remember for some people, but I think you talked about sort of there being a sky is falling pessimism at the company at that time. I'm curious as to how you think you went about changing the culture of Disney and, and what you would say or you know, how quickly you can do it as a leader, where that culture is today versus then. I think for any CEO of any particularly large company in today's world, the world throws you more and more curveballs, more and more challenges. And they, now they come at you constantly and from directions that you could never anticipate, never expect. It gets really tough. And I think one of the reasons why I think it's right for there to be change at the top sometimes is that can turn a CEO uh, into more of a skeptic or a pessimist or just because they get weary of all of those challenges. I know we had gone through a period of time at Disney uh, prior to my ascending to become CEO where those challenges were numerous. They're omnipresent. There was the Comcast hostile takeover attempt. There was the uh, board member shareholder revolt. There was the impact of technology on all of our traditional businesses. There was 9-11. There was, you know, we can think about all of these things and I think um, Disney at the time, 
had become weary of, of those challenges. And, um, and with that came maybe a little bit less of a belief in its future. There was the scale issue as well. Were we large enough? And it was intimidating, you know, to face some of those technology companies. You know, Steve Jobs announcing Rip, Mix, and Burn and what was going to be the future of IP. People challenging copyrights. It was left and right and all over the place. And so what I wanted to do when I came in was to see whether we could not ignore those challenges but put them aside and become optimists again and look to a future that we actually believe was brighter. And one thing that was important to me was embracing technology even though it was causing disruption and potential threats, I wanted to embrace it as a, as a means of creating opportunity. Well, for you us. did. I mean, Jobs showed you the first video iPod, didn't right. he? Right. So we put our television programs on it first. Yeah. Which was a tiny, tiny deal. But all of a sudden, it signaled, "Wait a minute, maybe we could use technology to gain as opposed to to lose." And that mentality was something I wanted to infuse in the company, which is, future is bright. Let's view technology as opportunity versus threat. That announcement turned out to be a big one. It led to more serious conversations with Steve about buying Pixar, too. I think one of the things that I was surprised at is if you consider pessimism about the future to be part of a company's culture, I thought it was going to take a long time to change that. It was very fast. Why do you think it was so fast? And why was that a surprise to you? It says something about that change in the top matters. You know, I'm not suggesting good or bad. I'm not suggesting, oh, in comes Bob and out goes Michael. But... It's, you know, has a, it, 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 it's, it, it can freshen things up, so to speak. And it's happening at Disney now as well. You know, there's a change at the top, and that could create a whole different outlook for the company going forward. Do you think forward. it freshens things up, your departure as CEO? Look, the world is changing dramatically, and it's important for the CEO of a company to address all of those changes rapidly. Bob is going to address them probably differently, perhaps, and I may have, but that's neither good nor bad. I think, generally speaking, change is good. Was YouTube around when you looked at that video iPod back in 05? I don't yes. even know. Yes, you YouTube was around. You might have wanted to take a shot at that. It might YouTube have worked out for you. It's interesting. I remember when YouTube was sold. One of the things I always rude, because uh, when YouTube emerged, we didn't see that first. I, I'm the one who put America's Funniest Videos on ABC in 1989, which was user-generated content, which YouTube really started as. Yes evolved tremendously. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, why, yeah. I don't know. I, you I missed, missed that, that one. one. It's worth about $300 billion now, yeah. by the way, based on its yeah. revenue. If you Buying YouTube see. would have been smart. It would have been. All right, so that gets me to worst decision. Is there one that comes to mind in terms of just a really bad decision you made over those 16 plus years? I made some bad decisions. Fortunately, they weren't monumental. They would have brought me down. Um, so I can't really think of like the worst decision. I made some bonehead creative decisions along the way. You know, greenlit some things I probably shouldn't have. All right, I mean, yeah, that, but saying yes to easy. Cop Rock is not exactly the worst decision yeah. you're going to make. You know, I, I'm, I'm, there's, that's actually, it's interesting. I, I, I try to be um, honest and candid, uh, both in terms of assessment of myself. I definitely made a bunch of bad decisions, sometimes people, sometimes product. Nothing gigantic. Nothing gigantic? No. And nothing comes to mind at all that you can share? It's a bunch of little things. Just little things. So I guess that's a pretty good tenure then, if it's a bunch of well, little I things. Well, I lasted a long time. You did last a long time. There's no doubt about that. I want to talk more about that. You know, I, I, I do have something here as well, though, that you went to China a lot. <laughs> yes, 45 times at least. And it's such an important moment here in terms of our two countries, obviously the deterioration of the relationship, the importance of China still to Disney. I just love to get your reflection on that, given your experience in the country, building Shanghai Disney, obviously, and more generally, you know, whether it represents a threat, this continued deterioration in relations between our two countries to your business. I think it represents a threat to not just our business, but all businesses that are doing business in China or seeking to do business in China. I believed in the future of China for this company which obviously is evidenced in some of the investments we made, including building Disneyland in Shanghai, which is something I'm extremely proud of. That is on a personal highlight reel. It's still doing, by the way, extremely well. Uh, I'm concerned that the relationship between ourselves and China uh, is such that growing in China, doing more business there, is tougher today and probably will continue to be. 
So if you're asking me whether I'm the optimist that I once was, that some of that optimism has eroded. Has it? Yeah. Would you have wanted to be ambassador to China? Uh, if I had been asked to be ambassador to China, it's something I would have said yes to. It's an important role, but never, never materialized. And you did think about running for president at one point, didn't you? I did, yes. Yeah, a couple of times. What do you want to know about that? Uh, well, you're not <laughs> you going to try again, I, are you? I had a... I have no plans to do that again. Oh, I didn't do it. Uh, no. To even think about it again? No. No. I think probably I was a bit naive, but I believed, actually starting in 2016 with the Clinton-Trump election, um, that America was ready for an outsider to go to Washington as president. That there was disillusionment with the two main political parties and with elected officials in general. And I saw myself as, that, as an outsider that could potentially end up <laughs> in that job. Um, I also saw myself in many respects as a product of the American dream, although I've, uh, life has caused me to rethink that even as well. What do you mean by that? I grew up relatively middle class, real middle class. Started at ABC at, at a ground level or you know, low level job. Um, worked my way up to become CEO of the Walt Disney Company, step after step, job after job. I thought I was the American dream. I would have loved that opportunity, the opportunity I was given, to be afforded to every, every kid in America. Uh, I don't think that America has provided people with equal opportunity. I think this goes to the whole um, subject of um, equality, race relations, justice. Um, and so I think it's easy for me to say I'm the product of the American dream, that any kid who started off as I did perhaps with the same abilities, the same work ethic, and the same incidence of luck could get to where I am. I'm not sure that that's the case. Mm -hmm. And that wouldn't motivate you at any point to, you know, I wonder, life after Disney? Do you see yourself Well, life after Disney is kind of a, bl a blank slate right now. Um, no, I always wanted to serve my country in some form, but my thoughts about becoming president, aside from the fact that they may have seemed naive, might not have been as practical. We can just cross um, off Yeah, I think we probably should. But, I, you know, I, I, I've admitted publicly it was something that I thought about and thought about seriously, but thinking about it and doing it are very, very different. And I never really got close. You know, just quickly to get back to China for a second. I mean, by, you do by the see, way, by the way, yeah. because we're at Disney Park and you can see things are so well run and clean, I can guarantee you, you know, the trains would have run on time, the streets would have been clean. Well, you should have run for mayor of New York. That's where we need clean streets, Bob. Everybody has ideas for me, right? Come back, man. You should have come back. Well, we'll you know, the great joke is Willow once said to me, you can run for any office in the land, but not with this wife. <laughs> She's always been against my running for office. What do you see yourself doing, uh, you know, a few days from now when you are no it's longer no, a part of this, this company? Dream, when this dream finally ends. You know, I've worked... Um, full-time, really full-time since I was 23 years old. I'm going to be 71. Uh, working uh, in the job that I've, the jobs that I've had, CEO and chairman, were taxing from a time perspective, never in terms of my energy or my enthusiasm. Um, it's time for me to have a blank canvas, so to speak, to be forced in a way to be a little bit more imaginative with my time. Not forced even to have that luxury. Well, what will I do today? Do you have I, any hobbies though? Um, yeah, I have some hobbies. I don't golf. Okay. Um, I'm, I like to sail. You don't sail and golf in the same lifetime. There just isn't enough time for that. Um, but my wife has a full-time job. My kids are out of the house. I'm so not you're going to have to keep now. busy. I'll keep busy. I'm doing some selective investing. I'd like the ability to be an advisor to founders of startups um, because I think I've got uh, some advice to give in that regard, uh, even though I haven't run a startup. Uh, and I've been sought after by some already. I'll probably do some of that. I plan to write another book, and I'll do some speaking, and I'll see, you know, where life takes me. Uh, I'm not in any rush. I've been advised by some who have stepped down from high office, including President Obama. He said, do not make any decisions. Don't commit to anything for six months. Six so months. I'm telling you, don't do that. You know, you, you wrote about Eisner's departure in the book, and you said, it's hard to know exactly who you are without this attachment and title and role that has defined you for so long. Yes. When I wrote about that, I had developed a lot of empathy for Michael. I remember his last day at Disney. It was a Friday. 
uh, last Friday in September of 2005, uh, when his wife and one of his sons came to Disney and had lunch with him, and he drove off the Disney lot after having been CEO for 21 years. At that point, I couldn't wait because I was ready, you know, to have that office and that title and that job, uh, and raring to go. And I don't think I thought long and hard at the time of what that really meant to him. And here I am. Yesterday was my last day on that Disney lot, you know, in this role. And it was an emotional experience for me. My son came to the lot, one of my sons. We had lunch together. There I walked around, took some pictures. I was feeling incredibly wistful, incredibly emotional. The ties that I've had to this company that have been so part of my life were ending in two weeks from now. Uh, for less, when this interview runs, I will not have a title. And I've had a decent title since I was in my 30s. It's a yeah. long time. But there's no anxiety about that at all. Um, sadness, because I'm leaving people that I love working with and a company I've loved working for. But no remorse, no second guessing, no anxiety. You don't regret having left when you did and stepped down as CEO when you did? No, I think that, look, I didn't, no one knew that the pandemic was going to explode the way it did. I think the timing was unfortunate. Um, but throwing a new CEO into you know, that's in, that, you know, that circumstance was difficult. I have no, no regrets about having made that decision. It was time. It was. Why? Yeah. I will say a lot of it was very, very personal. It wasn't about the company. It was about me. You know, wanting to leave with the vitality to explore the world in a different way. I thought back about a, a, a biography. I read a picture for the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Los Angeles Dodgers named Sandy Koufax, who left at the top of his game. And I think the biographer, of Koufax's biographer, Jane Levy, said that he left... Uh, walking off the field or on his own volition. Well, great athletes rarely retire on their own. Instead, they limp off the field. I didn't want to limp off the field. Yeah, he was only 30 years old, though. <laughs> he was 30? <laughs> he wasn't when he retired. Is yeah. that young? Yeah, uh, it could be. Yeah, I think he was. But he must have been going through some of the same things I went through, which is you're better off leaving when you still have it yeah. than leaving. I didn't want people to be going around saying, when the heck is he going to leave? You know, Isn't it time? I'd rather have them say, gee, did he have to leave when he's leaving? We would have liked him to stay longer. And I'm getting some of that. Meanwhile, there's nice. still, it's nice. There, there is a lot of people saying, well, like, you know, what's going on between Chapek and Iger? And is that a good relationship or, or not? You know, there's been a lot written about this yeah. recently. How should people view that? Is that should be that a, a concern in some way to Disney shareholders if you guys aren't, haven't been communicating well? Or? It shouldn't be a concern to Disney shareholders at all that, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that any dynamic between us is, would have an impact on the company long term. I'm leaving. He's in. It's his company. He's going to manage it as he, see fit, he sees fit with the board under circumstances that are very different than existed when I was CEO and, and chairman because they're changing as we've talked. They're changing so rapidly. And, um, you know, he'll make his own decisions. And, I, you know, I hope that he's learned le good lessons. I believe that he has in terms of, um, you know, some of the things that I did along the way and what worked and what didn't work. And I think you know, the relationship I have with him is not really relevant to, you know, how, he, how effective he is running the company. Does he ask for advice at all? He's asked for advice over the last couple of years, sure. Yeah. All right, uh, we're going to wrap up. I want to get a few couple of, a few things here from you. I'm going to offer some descriptions of you that people have given me, and I want you to just comment on them. They've evolved over time, descriptions of me, by the way. I went from being, a, is he really wor worthy enough to have to run the Walt Disney Company to, I've heard people say, you know, one of the best CEOs ever. It, I don't that's actually, no, that's were, amusing to it's me. It's a fair point. When you came in, there were a lot of people questioning the process and questioning whether you really had it or, you know. Yeah. You just to look like a CEO, but could you actually be one? Yeah. Yes, and? And what's the question? How do I feel about all that? First of all, I, it's always fun to prove the self-doubt, the, the, the doubters wrong. Yes. The naysayers, that's fun. Exceeding expectations, always fun. Um, you know, whether I've done that, and I guess I've done that with some people. You know, when I got the job, I think one of the reasons I got the job is I exuded a confidence to the board that I was capable of running this company. Not just as it was, but enabling it or leading it into the future or enabling it to evolve as times change. Um, 
I, I don't, by the way, I have no regrets of, or I don't, I don't harbor any ill will to those people who may have been doubters. It doesn't matter, but it's, I will say it is fun, as I said, to have proven them wrong. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, I'm people. Proud of my run, David. As you should be, Bob. It was a great run. There's a reason we're here having and talking and having this interview. I don't, we don't do that typically with too many CEOs. You had a, 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 an extraordinarily strong run, and you did remake the company uh, in a lot of ways. doesn't mean that it's per perfectly positioned. I mean, we can sit here and talk about direct-to-consumer. It's so important to the company and whether yeah. or not it really will. But we're in that business, though. I mean, you're in position, it. we've in it. Here's the starter kit. Go for it. Right. You know? We're in that business. That was, a big, that was a big deal. We disrupted our own businesses. We invested a substantial amount of money. We took big risks. You're going to still I mean, we you're spend $33 billion on content. That's a, lot of, that's, that's a lot of content. That's a big number, isn't it? Well, we're in it's, you know, I think that signals we're in it seriously. We want to win. Yeah. Um, all right. People say, uh, incredibly curious person. True? Very true. It's actually, when I'm asked often about, you know, I don't know, what's the secret of my success? Work ethic is one. Curiosity is definitely another. There are others. Uh, yes, I love new experiences, challenging myself with new ideas exploring new places, tasting new food, listening to new music, reading new books, just who I am. I'm driven by that. Can disagree without being disagreeable. You mean people can disagree with me? No, that uh, you are uh, capable of disagreeing with them without being oh, disagreeable. Oh, I see, I see. I think I learned some pretty good lessons in terms of giving creative feedback where you're not necessarily in complete agreement, but you express the disagreement in very respectful ways. I think that's been a great, le great lessons for me. And I've, I think, applied those to basically all opinions that I've expressed. Not all the time. Every once in a while, you just say, okay, listen. Enough. Enough. This is how I shut off the discussion and the debate, which is what a leader has to do, too. Know when. Always willing to listen. True? Yes, very true. Um, but I will say that over time, I think I started listening less and maybe with a little less tolerance of other people's opinions, maybe because of getting a little bit more overconfident in my own, which is sometimes what happens when you get built up, you know, in some form or another as, you know, something special or great or whatever. Right. I was mindful of that. Well, you were introspective enough to recognize it, though. A lot of leaders might not even recognize it. I think I wrote it. about that, too. I, was, I became a little bit more dismissive of dissent in other people's opinions than I should have been. And that was, that, that was an early sign that it was time. It wasn't the reason I left, but it was a contributing factor. That you just weren't right. You just didn't have the patience any longer, or you thought, I've First heard all, this you, all before. The, and the I don't... Yes, a lot of all those things. You've heard all the, every argument before. I don't want to hear it again, even though it may be more valid today than it was then. Times change, all the, you know, all the, the, you know, the time, the challenges of a CEO of a large global company today in terms of managing time. So you can't, so dissent has to be finite, right, in a sense, and, and depends on where you draw that line and when, you just, when do you shut dissent down. And maybe I was doing it a little bit too quickly. I, I felt that. All right. Did not let ego get in the way. I hope that's true. I don't know. I never felt it was about me at all. Um, actually, if anything, I was self-conscious of the fact that people made it about me too much, and they're doing that now. But I don't know. I, well, everybody is, has an ego. Yeah, I have and this an ego. is the end. They can make it about you now for a little bit. And, yes. They, and then they're, you're done. They're doing January that. January 1, nobody cares anymore. Yes, they're doing that. <laughs> I'm going to put these two names together. Most of our viewers won't have any idea who they are, but I remember because my first employer was Cap Cities, Dan Burke and Tom Murphy. Yes, I saw Tom Murphy two weeks ago. I think he's 96 years old. He came to the office. We spent an hour together, mostly for me to thank him for the opportunities he gave me. Tom Murphy just exuded integrity in, uh, in every single thing he did and taught me and reminded me, really, because I guess in ways my parents taught me the importance of integrity. He reminded me of just how important it was in every single decision you make and every single interaction you have with people in a job. Phenomenal. And Gay also gave me great opportunities because he bet, as he used to say, he bet on brains and, you know, not experience. I haven't used brains as these. Now I talk about talent. He just believed talent was more important than They experience. moved you up quickly through that moved organization. Moved me up in multiple ways over the years. 
Yeah, we had a great time together. And Dan Burke, who was his number two, was a great boss of mine too. He always made me feel when I walked into his office I was the most important employee of the company. That was an unbelievable talent. I've tried to be that way to people, which is basically giving them time, making eye contact, making some connection, not being distracted, looking at your watch, looking at email. He just, he was there for me. Great, great guy too. Rune Arledge. Yeah, I worked for Rune. He was uh, head of ABC Sports for 10 of the 13 years that I worked there. Many of those years not directly for him. He was amazing. First, intense uh, in his demand of people and, in, and intense in his demand for perfection. But that, I like that, being a perfectionist and that relentless pursuit of perfection. In many ways, Michael Eisner was that too. He was also a great, Rune was a great storyteller and a great risk taker. And I loved, I learned so much from him. So much. You he went for it. He yeah. Went. You mentioned Eisner, so I'm curious. Yeah. Um, I worked for Michael for 10 years. I learned a tremendous amount from Michael Eisner. I, I watched him deal with the adversity that came with, you know, the struggles that Disney had during the remaining, the last years of his tenure. Um, he is an incredibly creative executive. He taught me that nothing is more important than creativity at the company. I learned a lot about the Disney brand, about other businesses from him. Um, he gave me access to him and allowed me to watch with, from a front row seat of how he did it. Like he refounded the Walt Disney Company, he saved the Walt Disney Company, reinvented it. Many of the things that I have been able to do, I've been able to do because of the foundation that he built. Yeah, um, but it's interesting because he had an incredible run 10, 12 great years, and then it got very rocky. Did it yeah. inform at all your decision to sort of say, you know what, I don't want to go 21 years? Yes, it did. I, it did. I, I, you know, I, regardless of, you know, what he did or didn't do during that period of time, I saw what he experienced, and I just didn't want to go through that. Look, I, I, I managed through a great period of time for the Walt Disney Company, and I think it's nice to go out feeling that it's still great. Um, George Lucas? Yeah, George Lucas is someone that I have just immense respect for. He created, um, the, I think, the most valuable, most important mythology of, the mo of our modern day, of the 20th century, certainly. Um, all kind of from within him, which is amazing. I mean, we're looking at Inclusion, it right here. Yes. Uh, and then having the, really having the courage to sell that, his, you know, his baby to us. I watched film yesterday of the two, for video of the two of us sitting at my desk signing the deal. And I was aware at the time of what he was doing, very aware. You're watching old films? You're really trying to... Well, someone did out. a highlight. Oh, I, I saw a highlight reel yesterday. Did you cry? I did cry. Did you? Uh, well, it brought tears to my eyes, yeah. Um, well, here's a guy who doesn't bring tears to most people's eyes, Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> you know, I had a nice relationship with Rupert. Um, I haven't been in touch with him lately, but um, you know, he, he gave me an opportunity to buy those assets, and I, as I said earlier, I'm glad we did that. I always, I always respected Rupert for what he built. I mean, look at it from scratch in many ways. And a, an unbelievable risk taker and with such un, in, incredible tenacity. And finally, we, we've talked a lot about Steve Jobs already. So I don't think there's more I could possibly say about Steve except that uh, I learned more either from him directly or observing him than from anyone else in, in my business experience. And um, you know, to say that I loved him as a brother would probably be quite accurate. You know, we, we, had, we formed a very deep bond that was both business and personal. It's over a short time, too. He didn't know each other that long. He wasn't a lifelong no, uh, friend. My, my, I met him a few times earlier, but my first um, real interaction with him came when I became CEO. In 2005, he died in October of 2011. And finally, Bob, your legacy. What is it? Well, I think it's hard to define today. Maybe history will define it better. I. I was given the opportunity to run a great company, a company that was known around the world as being a, both a decent company and a company that was good for people, meaning what we created uh, enhanced and enriched people's lives with all that great storytelling. I believe that I inherited that company 
Well, I should, that I leave that company rather um, in, in great shape, having not just preserved the legacy, but have grown basically the legacy of the Walt Disney Company in this world. Uh, I wanted us to be among the most admired companies in the world when I got this job. I believe I achieved that. And the brand, what does it mean to you and what should it mean? Well, the brand is an extraordinary brand created by Walt Disney 1923, almost 100 years ago. And you look at all the great brands of the world back then, um, and there aren't many that are still around. Coca-Cola would maybe be the only one. And there's a reason for that. One is the qualities that were infused into the brand, but also the qualities that have been maintained over the years. The values stand for optimism and inclusion and uh, respect for family, respect for elders, respect for friendship, cheering on the hero's journey, or the hero and the hero's journey, celebrating the hero's journey, um, love, uh, even romance, all of those things. And just the, the fact that everything or anything is possible. It's an amazing brand in that regard. This interview is also available on CNBC.com and YouTube. For CNBC, I'm David Faber. This podcast was produced by Kelly Lynn, Carrie Caulfield, and Jesse Joseph, edited by Kelly Laudine, and recorded by Richard Rosillo, John Kiala, Jacob Jimenez, David Grogan, Alan Rice, Will Pupa, Daniel Hagwell, Mark Edelstein, and Dan Cook. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.